Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in political science are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Emma Ashford. Dr. Ashford is a senior fellow with the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, where her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. In this week's episode, Dr. Ashford speaks on the growing influence of restraint, the idea that the United States should have a less militaristic and activist foreign policy. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to take my mask off. Please let me know if anybody feels uncomfortable about that, but I'm I'm a long way away here. Um, So it's it's great to be here. Um, I really appreciate the invitation to come and speak to people particularly in person. Um, and, you know, I, I know, let me just start by saying um, that, you know, I know there's a bunch of PhD students in the room. Um, I am somebody who went through a PhD and ended up going off and doing policy work instead of going into a tenure track academic position. Um, and so while I'm going to talk about my paper and, you know, I'm sure most of the discussion will focus on that, if people have questions in the Q&A about careers or that path into studying policy, I am more than happy to to answer those. And I just wanted to say that up front. Um, So I'm going to base my remarks today on a paper that I published a couple of months back in Foreign Affairs. Um, And, you know, the the title of that paper ended up being um, Strategies of Restraint. Um, And the the broad idea was that we're at a, a moment in the debate over U.S. foreign policy where change in America's grand strategy and America's foreign policy, where, where change actually seems possible for the first time in perhaps 30 years. There was a moment immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union where there was debate on this um, and change was possible. And I think we are, we are entering a, a new moment of change. Um, and so, you know, I think we have started to see the seeds of a shift in U.S. foreign policy. Um, away from the the old consensus that surrounded U.S. foreign policy um, and towards something. But it's not entirely clear what yet. And I think there are several options. I'm going to talk about them as I go through here. Um, But I think the future is open for U.S. foreign policy in a way that it has not been for quite some time. Um, So let me just start, I guess, by saying a couple of words about, you know, the old consensus or the the consensus on U.S. foreign policy that, that has governed U.S. foreign policies since effectively the mid mid 1990s um and you know people will call that different names they'll call it liberal internationalism um primacy is another one you hear thrown around a lot i i tend to conceptualize this this approach to foreign policy as something like transformative primacy so the idea that america would um maintain its military primacy over all other countries in the world um but also that there was a very strong element of using the unipolar moment, the moment when America was at its strongest compared to other countries in the world, to effect transformations in the world. Um, And I think we can see this, you know, not just in the war on terror, not just in the invasion of Iraq, but also in things like um, a more aggressive approach to nuclear nonproliferation in the post-Cold War period, Um, interventions aimed at sort of 
ending humanitarian suffering, at promoting liberalism, at preventing dictators from committing atrocities, um, at expanding alliances in Europe and elsewhere. Um, and so just a, a series of U.S. foreign policy decisions aimed at trying to transform the world into a more peaceable, pacifistic, um, cooperative place. Um, and that, I think, helps to frame one of the reasons why we're seeing somewhat of a movement for change at the moment. Um, because those initiatives were not all failures. You know, there were some notable successes for U.S. foreign policy in the post-Cold War period. Um, you know, you might think of the Bush administration's PEPFAR program in Africa. Um, you might think of the JCPOA under the Obama administration, the Good Friday Agreements in the 1990s. Um, you know, so there are these notable successes. Um, but there's also just a litany of failures, the failures of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the failure of the intervention in Libya, um, some of the hostilities that grew out of American intervention in the Balkans in the 1990s, um, growing um, revisionism and pushback from states like Russia and China, um, and also a growing antipathy within Western countries towards um, U.S. foreign policy um, and towards some of the tenets of liberal internationalism, towards free trade, towards open immigration, towards the idea that there are collective security structures as opposed to national ones. Um, and so I think that's one big factor that's been driving this change. And then the other factor is structural changes in the balance of power. Um, so most visible, obviously, is the rise of China, um, but it is not just the rise of China. We are also seeing um, India, other countries in Asia rising. We are seeing um, substantive regulatory and financial power increasingly concentrate in the European Union. Um, and we are seeing other countries in um, other countries around the world um, increasingly able to affect the course of world affairs compared to the period in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, the result has been um, what I would describe as sort of a splintering of the consensus that has guided U.S. foreign policy since the mid-1990s. Um, in effect, um, you used to have a situation where sort of liberal hawks on the left and neoconservatives on the right largely agreed. They didn't agree on everything in U.S. foreign policy, but they did largely agree on what U.S. foreign policy was trying to do, that it was trying to be quite um, transformative, that it was trying to push liberalism and democracy, that it was trying to maintain American primacy. Um, that consensus is coming apart. Um, and the way I like to think about it is that I think different groups in the U.S. foreign policy debate are learning different lessons from the failures of our foreign policy in recent years. So, for example, a lot of conservatives um, see the global war on terror as a failure of motivations, Right. It's not that we failed trying to fight terrorism. It's that we failed because we imported things like nation building into the process. Many would also argue that we failed because, um, you know, the military had their hands tied by some of these liberal ideals that prevented them from being as tough on terrorists as they could have been. And so on both sides of the aisle, you hear different narratives for why the war on terror failed. And so these are some of the factors that I think are prompting this debate right now. Um, so let me just briefly talk about how I see sort of the landscape of the U.S. foreign policy debate at the moment. So I think there's three big groups. Um, the first are uh, a contingent of liberal internationalists, um, but it is a liberal internationalism that is somewhat chastened 
um, and is somewhat dialing down on the goals that it had during the post-Cold War period. So they're largely eschewing the notion of regime change through military force. They're largely eschewing the notion that we could go out and engage in nation building um, abroad. Um, but this liberal internationalism maintains many of the other tenets of post-Cold War consensus. So things like um, a large alliance network, things about protecting and spreading liberalism, albeit not at the point of the sword, um, and about um, trying to maintain American military legacy. Then there's a second group, and this is found mostly on the, the Republican side of the aisle, that you might call um, unilateralists, America firsters, um, who are traditional Jacksonians, but it's a Jacksonianism that's um, taken with sort of Trumpian characteristics, I might call it. So it's, it's very combative, it's very confrontational. Um, the lesson that they learned from the global war on terror was that we shouldn't care about playing nice with others and we should focus on American strength. And so this point of view still sees an America that's very active in the world, but it's mostly active through either military strength or things like sanctions. So predominantly coercive measures to achieve American interests. Um, and it is very focused on sovereignty and inherently nationalistic, where the liberal internationalism of today um, still has that, that sort of internationalist collective security flavor. Um, and then a third group, which um, people here at MIT are probably familiar with, and sometimes others aren't, is what we might call restrainers. Um, and I'll talk a little more about what that means later, but in the broadest possible terms, um, restrainers agree that the US is remarkably secure in its, in its national security, um, that there are growing flaws in U.S. foreign policy, whether it's wars of choice, whether it's allied free riding, um, and that shifts in the world um, mean that America may need to retrench in order to um, maintain its security and prosperity. Um, so those are kind of the three groups that we're talking about. And I think one notable feature that I would, I would point out is that the post-Cold War consensus was called a consensus because it was bipartisan, Right. It had adherence on both the left and the right, and that meant that U.S. foreign policy was pretty consistent during that period, even through um, shifts in the presidency. Um, today, most of the liberal internationalists fall in the Democratic Party. Most of the America Firsters fall in the Republican Party. And restraint is really the only bipartisan option that's actually on the table. Um, and what this potentially means is that we might be entering a period where we see swings in U.S. foreign policy between administrations. We've already seen this with the Trump administration, um, where they sort of withdrew from the TPP, ended America's participation in the JCPOA, and now we've got the Biden administration trying to get back at least into the JCPOA. So we see these pretty sudden swings between administrations. And it's not that that didn't happen before, but it was far rarer um, than, than it has been today. And so this is one concern of this sort of splintering of U.S. foreign policy. So um, I'm probably running massively over time here, but let me um, add to the confusion by saying that restraint um, is not monolithic. Um, and one of the things I do in the article um, that, I, that I mentioned is I talk about the different things that restraint is used to me. Um, and, you know, I'll highlight two big ones here, right? So the one you're all probably familiar with is the theoretical version, right? So um, theoretically, restrainers are those who subscribe to either restraint, as Dr. Posen has proposed it, um, or to some variant of offshore balancing. Um, and 
So, you know, not all realists are restrainers, not all restrainers are realists, um, but there is a sizable overlap there. And theoretically, these, these grand strategies are what we might consider as restrained grand strategies. Um, but then there is a broader meaning of restraint as it's come to be used in Washington and, and in other countries. Um, and that is sort of a coalition of people that's pushing for more restrained U.S. foreign policy. So that is the anti-war left, the libertarian right, deficit hawks, paleoconservatives, um, veterans groups. There are lots of different groups in here. Um, and that meaning of restraint um, has become much more common, even as it is far fuzzier than the theoretical constructs that we might think of. And, and I'll just highlight sort of a couple of big things that those groups might disagree on, right? They might disagree on China. They might disagree on trade. They might disagree on the value of international institutions, right? So that's like three of the biggest things in political science that those two groups might disagree on. Um, so I guess let me just dial down onto the sort of the theoretical part of it, um, because I think, you know, the, that's more interesting for us from an analytical point of view. Um, so the two, I think the two big flavors of restraint um, that, that we've seen are um, restraint and off-rebalancing. Um, and for me, I see the core differences between the two as um, how, how far away from the United States do you draw the line? So are you concerned about hegemons in other regions and the ability for the U.S. to get excluded? Um, how do you view trade and the necessity of America's overseas markets to be protected? Um, do, how much do you think the stopping power of water matters? Um, so in practical terms, those are sort of big questions, but in practical terms, I think offshore balancers today care a lot about Asia. They care a lot about China. They're worried about China's rise and would like to take a more proactive approach there. Um, most restrainers, those who advocate for restraint, are, are less concerned. Um, the reason I bring this up, because this is probably not news to you, um, but because in the search for sort of a practical consensus on U.S. foreign policy, so shifting from the level of grand strategy down to U.S. foreign policy, um, these differences really matter. Um, because within this sort of restraint coalition, within this third group, the liberal internationalists, the America firsters and the restrainers, the restrainers disagree on all manner of things. They disagree on China. They disagree on whether the U.S. should defend Taiwan. They disagree on what role the U.S. should play in European security. They disagree on trade. And the victories that restrainers have had so far, that is the success that they've had in nudging U.S. foreign policy towards restraint, have mostly come in the areas where restrainers all agree particularly on the question of the war and terror in the Middle East. Um, going forward, there's far less consensus within that group um, on where U.S. foreign policy should be going. And so one thing that we could see in coming years is sort of both political parties um, pooling the parts of restraint that they like and trying to implement it rather than restraint being a more coherent block. Um, in practical terms, you know, I, I would also argue that both restraint and offshore balancing, you know, as they are written as grand strategies, um, give insufficient attention to a couple of things. Um, so they give insufficient attention to the impact of foreign policy and of foreign actors on, on liberalism at home. So whether U.S. foreign policy um, has destabilizing effects on uh, U.S. democracy at home, um, whether foreign actors can exploit internal divisions um, to worsen things here at home. 
I think both also gave insufficient attention, um, particularly to the value of non-military tools and engagement with the world. Um, now, historically, at least, offshore balancing, you know, if you look at the British context in the 19th century, has relied very heavily on non-military tools. Um, but most of the texts um, that we have on these subjects today focus instead on the military dimension, on that retrenchment, without discussing the sort of engagement that, that needs to replace it. Um, and then I think the final area where both sort of don't really answer some key questions is um, considering the impact of path dependence in U.S. foreign policy and what is feasible to change in the near term and on the impacts that sudden shifts in U.S. foreign policy can have. And I'll give one example here. So um, the withdrawal from Iraq that the Obama administration withdrew um, ended up actually backfiring. When they, when they withdrew in 2009, it ended up helping to precipitate the rise of ISIS. Um, and the Obama administration felt compelled to go back into that conflict. Um, and so I think that's one good example of how an attempt by policymakers to shift towards restraint ended up pushing a circumstance that made it more difficult to do over the long term. And so I think that's one area where these grand strategies, which are often written in a sort of tabula rasa form, um, sort of ignore the, the possibility or ignore the problem of path dependence in U.S. foreign policy. Um, so I'm going to say just a few words um, more and then wrap up. I don't want to take all the time. Um, but in the article, the, the sort of approach that I advocate for is um, what I call realist internationalism. Um, and I think this is one of the more practical options um, to minimize the costs of today's U.S. foreign policy and maximize the gains while bearing in mind those constraints. Um, so, you know, I, I base this idea in a sort of very purposefully ecumenical realism. So states are the key actors in international affairs. They're guided by security. We live in a state of anarchy, you know, general realist principles, um, but not by, you know, the, not by the strictures of um, structural realism necessarily. So this is, is very much a theory of foreign policy. This is not a, a theory of, of international security. The key goals of liberal internationalism um, would be to focus on U.S. security, U.S. prosperity, U.S. liberalism at home. Um, this means maintaining trade. This means trying to steer the world towards multipolarity rather than bipolarity to the extent that we're able to do so in the coming decades. Um, and in particular, this means avoiding great power war wherever possible, or if at all possible. Um, so a few core principles that I'd advocate here, and I'm happy to talk more about this and more about what it might mean in practice in the Q&A, um, but you know, America should abrogate primacy, military primacy as a goal, and should instead seek military sufficiency to achieve those goals. Um, we should downsize U.S. alliance commitments, not necessarily through breaking or withdrawing from those commitments, but by aggressive burden shifting to capable allies wherever possible. Um, and by building new structures, even within those alliances, that can help to substitute for the American presence. Um, and then in particular, I would argue that we need to move past the notion of American leadership in the international system. Um, and instead, start to think about America's role as first among equals, America as a facilitator, a convener, um, someone, a country that can build coalitions to solve collective action problems, um, rather than a country that needs to lead the way on every problem. Um, prioritizing the preservation of U.S. values and liberalism at home, not necessarily abroad. 
and adopting um, what you might call a do no harm approach to human rights. So looking for ways in which we can help to improve human rights abroad, but without facing fights that we can't necessarily win. So rather than looking at sanctions as a coercive tool to try and coerce behavior change in states that we disagree with, we don't have many ties with, consider the ways in which we could pressure allies in, to improve their human rights or perhaps to um, stop making things worse. So U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia would be one example. Um, so, you know, you could consider this approach um, either a, a broader version of offshore balancing that, that includes sort of non-military factors, or you could go all the way back to the early 1990s and call it a far more selective, selective engagement. Um, but I think this approach is one that, that would sort of maximize the benefits of cooperation globally, remaining internationalist, remaining liberal, um, while minimizing the risks that that more transformative liberal internationalism has, has put on U.S. foreign policy. And so um, I'm going to wrap up there. Um, I look forward to your questions. Um, thank you. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP featuring Dr. Emma Ashford. She will now take questions from the audience. Please excuse our dust while we work to increase the clarity of audience questions. Hello, Wright Smith, a third year PhD student. I am fastening onto something you said as one of the prescriptions at the end of your talk, which is that the US should try to encourage multipolarity as opposed to bipolarity. And not all, but several of the really canonical realist thinkers are very skeptical of multipolarity being more stable and are much more are concerned that it's a much more chaotic and war-prone kind of system. So I'm curious, why should the U.S. encourage multipolarity instead of bipolarity? Are those thinkers wrong or is it actually still going to be easier to manage given sort of the power differentials we see? Yeah, that's a really good question. No, I, I think they're probably right that multipolarity is inherently more chaotic and probably more prone to war. Um, the, the thing that I I tend to think is missing from some of those accounts, um, you know, the ones that, that say that bipolarity is inherently very stable, that it doesn't lead to war, um, is if you think about the actual practical, um, if you think about the Cold War, right? Yes, it was stable. It wasn't stable everywhere. There were, there were brush wars, um, but it was stable under the constraints of nuclear annihilation, right? The stakes could not have been higher if that stability failed. Um, and so I think that what's, what's missing from many of those accounts is, a, a, you know, is an understanding or an acknowledgement of the stakes that come with conflict in each kind of system. So I think that under a multipolar, in a multipolar world, we could indeed see more low-level conflict between states, um, particularly if there aren't hegemons like the U.S. or the Soviet Union sort of stabilizing things, managing where there's, where there's conflict. Um, but I think that conflict is lower stakes. And certainly from the point of view of U.S. security, I think it's a worthwhile trade-off to trade some extra conflict in other regions for not having to be concerned that a conflict in the South China Sea will necessarily blow up into a nuclear exchange. And so that's, 
that's kind of where I come down on that. I, I, I agree that's what the, the literature says on, on stability and multipolarity. But in the, I think in the context of the nuclear world, I'm not sure if that makes as much sense as it used Hi, Dr. Ashford. My name is Nick Ackert. I'm a third year PhD student as well. Um, thank you so much. One thing that you said that resonated with me especially was treating partisanship as a potential variable for calculating where the U.S. may go next in its grand strategy. Um, and one thing that I was curious about, is if you look at the Trump administration's foreign policy, despite the emphasis on America first, U.S. military spending remained at an all-time high. We invested a ton in our nuclear arsenal. Um, and despite all of the hullabaloo about retrenching from our alliances, particularly in East Asia, uh, the U.S. didn't really abrogate any of those commitments. And I felt like the Trump administration was a most likely case of, say, sort of a hardcore kind of Republican strategy, or at least what the party has become now. Um, uh, and so my question is, if, if there was less of an impact there than we anticipated, and if we go back to the Cold War and look at the relative unity of both Republican and Democrat uh, responses to, to the Soviets and to containment, um, should we view partisanship uh, as, as an important indicator? Um, or are there private or bureaucratic interests or this kind of persistent um, idea of U.S. liberalism that may be an equally, if not more important, driver of U.S. foreign policy and grant strategy in the future? Thank you. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, no, so I, I think this is, again, an interesting question, right? During the Trump administration, we would have expected, might have expected to see major changes to U.S. foreign policy. Um, and it's notable that the, um, you know, the adults in the room, as they were often called, um, the, the sort of the, the foreign policy establishment that was brought into staff the administration did, for the most part, manage to stop Donald Trump from carrying out some of his worst, uh, I was going to say worst impulses, but some of them were actually fairly good ideas, but he, um, he was not able to carry them out, whether they were bad or good. So, for example, we know at this point that he tried, he wanted to withdraw the U.S. from NATO. Um, and we can all debate the merits of whether withdrawing the U.S. from NATO overnight is a good idea or not. Um, but it was the people around him that managed to stop it. Um, so that said, though, um, I think there's been a notable shift in the Republican foreign policy establishment um, from Pesite, right? So ignore the person, the flamboyant, crazy person of Donald Trump. And if you look at what um, elites in the Republican foreign policy establishment are saying and writing these days, um, they are coming around to a view of the world that is, used to be that John Bolton was all out there on his own, arguing for a US foreign policy that um, didn't take part in international institutions, um, that focused on sovereignty, that used force and coercion rather than anything else. Um, and it used to be that most Republicans didn't really um, follow that, that worldview or didn't really apply that worldview in practice. And I think what we're seeing is that more and more of them do. Um, so one, one thing I'd call your attention to is the fight that's been going on for the last like six months, nine months over Nord Stream 2. Um, so this, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, if you haven't been following this or don't know, um, pipeline between Russia and Germany, the Russians want it, the Germans want it, Eastern European countries, members of NATO don't want it. Um, and the US has been trying to kill this. So under Trump, um, Congress passed sanctions um, on German companies building the pipeline. So we were sanctioning um, our German allies uh, over this pipeline. The Biden administration waived those sanctions because it wanted to rebuild transatlantic ties. And since then, Republicans in Congress have been trying to pass bills with, with no waiver for national security that would basically mandate sanctions go back on German companies. So, um, 
you know, this is uh, a sort of a, a Republican approach to foreign policy that is almost entirely unilateralist, doesn't care what allies think, doesn't care what other countries think, just tries to impose what people in Washington think on other countries, whether they are allies, partners, foes, whatever you want to call them. And so that is the shift that I think is more interesting because I am not particularly interested or concerned. You know, I, don't, I don't think Donald Trump is going to come back and make a bunch of foreign policy changes, but the next Republican president will be will likely, he will not be a new, he or she will not be a neoconservative. They will be shaped by that worldview instead. Julian um, uh, Rippey, I'm a fourth year student uh, here at SSP. Um, long time admirer of your work, so thanks for coming to talk. Um, I was, again, just sort of, and everyone's zeroing in on sort of your last couple paragraphs here, um, but I'm also going to do that. Um, so you say that uh, one thing that the U.S. should do with its allies especially is uh, pursue kind of um, burden shifting. And you say that there should be some other arrangements made to offset that. Um, so I'm wondering what you see as like, one, what are things concretely that the U.S. can give up? Uh, I guess, especially, right, with um, maybe Taiwan and Japan. Uh, and what are things that they can put in place that will actually make a difference there? Is that military spending, political, economic, whatever? Sure. Um, so I really appreciate, I appreciate people narrowing in on the last part of this because it's the part that is the least well fleshed out and still needs to be fully written. So I really appreciate criticism. Back. Um, on, on burden shifting, um, so two, two key areas we could think about it. So the European and the Asian theater. Um, you asked primarily about Asia. Um, so I am, I'm a realist, so I am somewhat concerned about the rise of China. Um, and I do think that the U.S. needs to strengthen its ties in Asia rather than actually dial them back. Now, I don't necessarily think that means lots of boots on the ground, um, certainly no more than is there already, perhaps less. Um, so, for example, I would oppose the, the current buildup in Taiwan, but I do think that there are other areas, um, arms, sales, joint exercises, um, where we could help those countries to build up their own capabilities. Um, I think the picture looks very different. Um, oh, sorry, and, and in Asia. And so the one thing that I would say is we should keep those arrangements as flexible as possible. Um, I think one one lesson or one, one key takeaway from what's happened in Europe over the last 30 years is that alliance arrangements can calcify and live on well past their intended purpose. And I think that is something we want to avoid in Asia. So we need to keep those as flexible as possible. Um, in Europe, though, I think there is much more of a rationale, much more of a um, much more of a good reason to consider trying to basically get America out of Europe to the point where it is just a, a guarantor of last resort and, and nothing more. Um, so trying to encourage European states to build up their domestic capabilities, and that is not as easily said as done because there is no consensus within Europe on whether to do that or not. Um, so a couple of approaches that might work. Um, one would be um, backing the French push for European Union military buildup um, within the context of sort of, um, you know, French defense, because they are by far the most eager to do it um, and encouraging particularly France, but other European countries to work with Eastern European counterparts that are also building up. So basically coalition of the willing, I hate the phrase, but, but coalition of the willing within Europe to try and replace the U.S. presence 
Um, another way to think about it would be um, to think about building sort of constellations of countries within NATO that share common interests. So one of, one of the problems within the NATO alliance is that the different countries have very different security concerns, and therefore it's almost impossible to get unanimity on what should be built up and when. And the U.S. has typically just filled those gaps. So, you know, so Italy is concerned about the Mediterranean, Poland is concerned about Russia. Um, so trying to build um, smaller groupings within NATO where countries that are concerned about common threats could build up common capabilities. And that's going to take a very long time. Um, but that is one slightly more practical way to approach this rather than just saying Europe needs to do more and, 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 and moving on. Get two finger there. Professor Eric Lynn Greenberg. So, okay. if you can speak a little bit more about your variation of Asia and Europe, is it that Russia has a less aggressive threat to security? Is it that you, you think that farmers in Europe are better able to do some kind of Um, I think it's. I, I, I'm ambivalent about tensions. I don't really think tensions matter that much at all in this context. It's all capabilities. Um, I think that China has the Capacity, and here's where I'm pretty classic ultra balance. I think China has the capacity to dominate the region, which is to say it has the capacity to exclude the U.S. from the region in terms of trade, in terms of politics. Um, Russia does not have anything remotely approaching capacity to do that in Europe. Um, the Russian military is far more capable than it was 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, the, the conversations that we're having in Washington right now are about, well, could Russia take half of Ukraine? Maybe it could, probably could, right? If, if that is the debate that we are having, Russia is not a substantive military threat to Europe. And those countries are more than capable of building up to meet that threat. Professor M. Taylor Fravel. So, since uh, the C word was mentioned, um, can you say more about China um, <laughs> in, your, in your approach? Um, because if there is one area of consensus in Congress policy, it does appear to be. I've always got China on my brain, but I was just wondering what would the realist interest, like how would this specifically be applied to deal with problems? Yeah, so I, I hesitate to say anything on China surrounded by people who know far more about China than myself. Um, but in, in terms of sort of US policy, I, I think the, you know, the, the, the needle that needs to be threaded, which is going to be very, very difficult to thread, is how to you know, signal to China that the U.S. is not completely withdrawing from Asia while not simultaneously um, creating some sort of build-up security spiral. Um, that's not a new insight. That's an insight I think everybody should probably have. Um, and I think, you know, it's going to require attention to a couple of things. Um, so one is to crisis escalation measures, um, confidence-building measures. This is something, you know, um, my initiative, we put a couple of papers out earlier this year, we know the administration is actually putting them into practice, is trying to build up some of the, the confidence measures, um, you know, mill-to-mill -mill exchanges, um, a hotline between the countries, um, military um, coordination on various issues. These are the things that we had by the late Cold War that helped to stabilize that relationship. Um, and so focusing on those might help. Um, Another is thinking more clearly about the places where our presence might be causing anxiety in, in Beijing. And, and this is where, you know, my, my energy background, I think, 
you know, forces me to think mostly about this one, um, U.S. naval presence in parts of Asia, particularly in the, the Straits of Malacca and Lombok near Indonesia, um, has been viewed for some time in Beijing as a potential military threat, right? The U.S. could itself cut off China's oil supplies in the Middle East. That is a massive threat. That is a that is a threat big enough that when the U.S. was in a similar situation in 1980, we got the Carter Doctrine um, and the Gulf War out of it. Um, so, yeah, so that is one example of a place where I think if we're not careful, um, we could see sort of security spiral dynamics. So, you know, my, my primary concern is how do we sort of hedge um, so that we keep our hand in Asia, so that we make sure that we are not simply ceding Asia, China, without necessarily sparking some kind of um, And that, you know, I'm not sure, I don't think I have the answer there necessarily, but I think at a very least working on those practical things might help us avoid Professor Barry Posen. So thanks for coming up, Emma. It's good to see you. Um, I was going to ask a question about burden sharing as well, but uh, I've, I think it was asked and answered. But I do want to come back to the question that Taylor has asked and to the distinction you raised between um, restraint in Asia as an approach to China versus offshore balancing. And you know, I, I've been thinking about restraint for a long time, and I've been trying to think about the restraint policy to address the rise of China. And I, I don't think I've really come up with one yet, and I'm not sure that there is among restrainers a consensus on that on that matter. But I, I do think that restrainers are the true owners of offshore balancing. And those who've claimed offshore balancing as their strategy are being disingenuous. The strategy they recommend is U.S. is basically there can be one hegemon in Asia. It's either China or the United States, and it's going to be the United States, right? Those who talk about offshore balancing in Asia now are really talking about uh, offshore containment, right? That's the way I would characterize it. So, so I don't really think there is a restraint strategy for China yet. Um, I think if there is one, it will have that offshore balancing flavor. Uh, not heavily institutionalized, quite flexible, not hegemony from the sea. Uh, something that starts from the premise that um, burden sharing and burden shifting should be central, that everyone there has an interest and they should all play a role. That, 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 that's sort of the direction that restraint should be looking for, but I don't think that's a well-worked out position and I, th I think there's a reason for that, because I think it's a very complicated problem, right? I, I, my own characterization of the offshore balancing school is just, yeah, kind of get out your old NATO-Soviet stuff and do search and replace and, you know, start up the engine in Asia and, and just acknowledge that the engine is going to work from the first and second island chains because it can't start on the continent because there's really only two, you know, it's two countries there, especially in East Asia, it's China and and Russia, neither are friends of ours. So anyway, I'm babbling here, but yeah, you see the point that I'm making, right? That 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 the 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 version of offshore balancing that's being sort of promulgated, and I'll just name a name. I'd say John Mearsheimer's probably been the person most forward in this. I just don't think it's offshore balancing. I think it's something very different. And I, I just wonder what your reaction is to my characterization. Just I'm trying to be provocative here, but I wonder what your reaction is. Yeah, I mean I think 
Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. Um, you know, getting getting asked to come and do a talk on restraint in front of a room, including Barry Posen, is a little nerve wracking. I'll be honest. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think there's no restraint consensus on China. Um, I think what's really interesting is if you go back five years, I think there was more of a consensus that China wasn't a threat, that it really wasn't a problem, that we could deal with it when it became a problem. Um, and the shift that I have seen, you know, this is this is just anecdotal talking to people. The shift I have seen is that I think there is now more real, more of a realization that China is somewhat of a concern and that we need a new position. Um, and, and again, I think it's going to come down to some flavor of, of offshore balancing. Um, with, with regard to your comment on sort of offshore containment, offshore balancing, um, I think it's about how you conceptualize hegemony. Um, because, you know, you're right that in Asia, we start from this place where China is just so big that they're already the hegemon, right? Um, I like to conceptualize hegemony not as size or military power. I like to conceptualize it as the ability to exclude. So if China can exclude us from Asia in terms of preventing us from trading with Asia, preventing us from dealing diplomatically with other countries without sort of going through them. If China dominates the region to the extent that America is effectively shut out, that is the hegemony I think is problematic. And I don't think that is how, for example, I don't think that's how John Mearsheimer conceptualizes it. I think he thinks about it very much more in this sort of military sense. Um, and so for him, thinking about it just in, in pure military terms, um, I think he's already at the point where he thinks the U.S. needs to be onshore to deal with it. I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. Um, so, I mean, I, I will say I, I sort of drew a sharp line in my, in my remarks between sort of restraint and offshore balancing. Um, I, I do tend to think these things are much more of a spectrum, right? Um, so I would probably fall somewhere between those, those two. Um, does that answer your question, or is that no? But it's no. right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, it's, it's, it's not a friendly issue. I think this. I think the debate is in the early stages. Yeah. So I have some questions for trying to But in that sense, of what would? Sorry, this is you know, my mind. So, what would military sufficiency in Asia look like? Uh, because I guess regardless of one's definition of it, there's there is a military component to it. That is the one that seems to be attracting a lot of attention in the United States. DoD describing China's challenge. And so so what 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 is sufficiency kind of a practice to stay in this region? Another region. Yeah, so um, again, I think Asia is the most difficult, right? The, the others are all much, much easier than Asia in this context. Um, I mean, I think it has to be, it has to be primarily naval. It has to be primarily about maintaining access to sea lanes, but also the capability to either um, sort of apply force to defend countries like Japan and South Korea if that becomes necessary, um, or to go back on shore to do it. Um, the, real, the real difference is that I would say that, you know, just sort of looking historically, I'm not convinced we necessarily need to have that ability today as much as we need the, the military and industrial base to build up the capacity to go back on shore. Um, 
So I, I think Asia is the most problematic region because I think it's the region where a forced posture for something like this realist internationalism would actually look most similar to the one we have today, at least in Asia. Um, I think there would be small differences. I don't think they would be as big as in, I think in other regions, they would be dramatic. Dr. Eric Higginbotham. Thank you, Emma. This is great. Um, I will say that Julian, Eric, and Taylor uh, asked my initial question, and Barry and Taylor asked my backup question, so I'm kind of fresh out of ideas. I will say, uh, you know, first of all, you should add Asia to the title of your talk next time. That was a big mistake on your part. Uh, but, but I will stick with Asia. Um, and I, I guess for my third question, my second backup, I'll ask, uh, uh, can you say a little bit more about this idea of aggressive burden sharing and how it might apply? I mean, you know, in Asia, you've got countries like the ROK. I shouldn't say like the ROK. You've got the ROK, which spends a lot of spending uh, still. But, you know, let's take a case, Japan, that's spending a little bit more than 1% of GDP right now. Um, you know, what are the strategies to encourage greater spending? How do you play, in a sense, hardball with them without, uh, you know, given the great asymmetry of power in the region, without discouraging them? And, you know, perhaps uh, uh, encouraging them to take an alternative approach, which would be accommodation of China as opposed to a greater role in, in balancing China, um, if that's even the right framework. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So, so again, a good question. And again, I think um, I'm not an Asia specialist, but unfortunately you have to be these days. Um, it, it is different in Asia than it is in other regions, right? Because in Asia, um, there is this concern that other countries will bandwagon with China um, if we um, if we withdraw too much, if we indicate that we are not a good alternative to China, um, there is this concern. Um, so, you know, I think in Asia, it's very much about threading the needle of pushing states to build up their own capacity. So not just not just offering American capabilities in a way that, that encourages free riding, um, but simultaneously um, showing that we will provide sort of complementary capabilities where possible um, in a way that encourages them not to simply throw up their hands and shift towards China. Um, and that looks very different, again, in Asia than it does in Europe. In Europe, we can make a credible threat to leave if European states don't actually build up their defense. Um, you know, so I would advocate something like a 10 or 15 year uh, period where the US dials down its commitment to Europe um, while giving European states the chance to, to um, to increase their spending, increase their capabilities. Um, but I would advocate that, that it, you know, I would say that's not a bluff, right? We should withdraw at the end of that, even if the European states have not built up their capabilities. Because once we leave, they will do it much faster. Um, the problem is in Asia, that is not necessarily a credible threat. Um, and so I think the, the dynamics of burden shifting and burden sharing look very different in Asia than they do in other regions. Um, and so, you know, we, we, I think we just have to be cognizant of that problem. Graduate student Nina Miller. I'm going to ask a wildly more easy question. Um, so we know that the Biden administration is very concerned about the EU building up a defense force. And it seems to be a lot of those concerns are rooted in the idea that that might in some way weaken NATO. 
do you think that's a legitimate concern or is that an outmoded um, way of, of viewing the problem? Um, for, for myself personally, I tend to view it as quite outmoded. I mean, as you know, the U.S. has consistently tried to constrain EU military buildup or EU military development um, for the reason that it wants to retain its hand in European security. Um, I think what, what's different this time around or what's different with the Biden administration is that they are actually making some incipient moves towards saying we actually approve of the European Union building up its, its military capability. So we had a deal just a few weeks back, the, the uh, PESCO um, deal, uh, where the US said this is okay. And that's something the US has never said before. And so I think in this administration, um, I think there's very little limits to how far they're willing to go on this. But I think for the first time, we are actually seeing an administration that's willing to countenance the notion of EU defense. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting questions, I think, about whether EU capabilities and capacity should be improved within, with, under the umbrella of NATO or under the European Union umbrella. Um, the French would very much prefer that it happens under the EU umbrella um, because it shuts the US out entirely and because it benefits the defence industrial base. Um, but to be honest, I think if it's a choice between no improvements in capacity and capability versus improvements under the EU umbrella, um, I think that still would probably be a win for US foreign policy. So I'm, I'm pleased to see the administration taking even baby steps in that direction. Hey, uh, Rich Nielsen, associate professor here. Um, so I'm still trying to find the right way to ask this, but does it really count as restraint if the argument is, well, we should be restrained, except there's this China thing, and we should go along with all the folks in Washington who agree that this is a big problem, and so we need some solution there. I'm kind of bouncing off, you know, Barry's... Uh, question here about like, oh, what would, what would like a, like a genuine restraint option uh, to addressing the rise of China look like? And I guess I, I've somewhat read like restrainers as trying to balance a budget in some ways. It's really hard. You're being austere and you say, hey, there's only so many things we can do in the world. We're just not going to like try to do them all. And so we're going to give up on goals even when they're hard, right? But it feels like the discussion around China is like, well, but we can't give up on that goal because you sure, of course, we should be, seek, you know, sufficiency and not primacy, but not over there. And we should be the first among equals, but not with China, et cetera. And I'm curious uh, if you can say something stronger about like how much restraint is enough or maybe Washington is so uh, activist with respect to the rise of China that anything less than that counts as restraint. I'm curious uh, if you can say more about that. Sure. Also, I know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so again, those are both really good questions. Um, so I would say, um, you know, this is one reason why, with, with all due respect, Barry, why um, I would not necessarily call myself a restrainer is because I, I don't think restraint in all areas of the world is necessarily the best idea. I think... There have been periods in history where restraint and, you know, realism after balancing have been very close to each other. I think the last 30 years, that's the case. Um, but I think there are periods where that is not the case. Um, you know, and I think if you look at the Cold War, 
those two were in somewhat different camps during the Cold War. And so I would not necessarily define myself as a restrainer in the theoretical sense because of that difference. And so, you know, for me, and I think for, for some others, um, the importance of dialing down in other regions is so that we are more capable and more able to turn towards China um, rather than dialing down for its, for its own sake. Um, and so that's what you're, I think, alluding to when you say there's like a budget and you're trying to balance it. So, so for me, it really is about balance. It's about trying to find a place where we can achieve the really important things for national security. Because I actually think China is a concern um, and one that has the potential to actually undermine U.S. security and prosperity. Um, I do not think some brush one in the Middle East does that. So that's, you know, it's, for me, it's about, um, you know, reprioritizing towards the things that really matter. Um, there are, but I will say, however, that there are, I think, um, some people, um, strainers, some people in Washington more generally, um, who would argue that the U.S. Um, needs to retrench simply because it can't keep going as it has. Um, I'm not, I'm, I do not necessarily think that is accurate. I think we could consider to do, a, we could continue to do a substandard job everywhere and eventually decline as a result. Um, and that's why I favor some retrenchment to deal with, with other threats. Um, I, d I don't think it's the case that um, we simply can't afford to do it, um, you know, if, if we keep going. Thanks. Raymond Vaughn. <clears throat> uh, thanks for a very interesting talk. Raymond, third year in the program. Um, I guess I'm going to turn, my question is actually about like domestic politics. So I guess at the start of the talk, you said for the first time in 30 years, you think change in U.S. grant strategy is possible. So I'm wondering what are the, what do you think are the structural and domestic conditions that made such a change possible? And I don't know if that's important. That's a very simple, very, very easy question or very simple question, at least. Um, very complicated answer, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that play into it here. So, like I said in the talk, I, I really think there's kind of two buckets of causes. Um, and, and one is just the structural story, right? It's that the U.S. had this unipolar moment where we were sort of head and shoulders above everybody else. That is coming to an end. It is visibly coming to an end. Um, but what's interesting is just from a, from a social scientific point of view, that can't explain why we're suddenly seeing these debates because those changes have been visible for some time. They've been visible for more than a decade. And... Um, you know, we haven't seen the conversation until the last few years. Um, and so I think there has been some, the, the impact of domestic politics there. I think what we saw was in 2016, a couple of candidates, particularly Donald Trump, um, who were willing to say that the war on terror was a mistake. Um, and that in, in many ways sort of opened up the window for debate on U.S. foreign policy. Um, sort of made the public more aware of some of the flaws in our current foreign policy, of some of the costs of it, particularly, again, as regards to war on terror. Um, and then we've had very active political campaigns over the last sort of five years, basically, since, since Trump was elected, pushing for things like an end to the war in Afghanistan. Um, and so, you know, I think that's the domestic political side of it is, you know, whether, whether it is elite-led telling people the problems with the war on terror, whether it's population-led, people are getting fed up with the war on terror. We are seeing this, this shift um, on the domestic side. And I think when you combine that with the structural 
changes, we finally had this sort of space for debate that just wasn't there. Graduate student Raymond Wong. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk, Emma. Uh, I like a lot of your work, and I was glad to see you come in today. Um, one thing I was wondering about is, you know, I guess in terms of this being a right moment for change within U.S. foreign policy, uh, you know, the leaders of some of the foreign policy vision towards China in the last administration and this one, Elbridge Colby and Rostoshi, have both written with, I think, the intention of a very unrestraint-like posture towards China um, for the coming, uh, you know, competition with it. Uh, I guess, do you think that there is still a possibility for change within the Biden administration, given that both of them and the Trump administration or whatever administration comes next uh, have adopted that policy? And then separately, do you view that or do you think that there's always going to be some opposition to a restraint policy, given that it requires a relinquishment of some power by the state, um, you know, agreeing to restraint? And how do you, uh, you know, develop a sort of compelling rationale for relinquishing that power, given the sort of inherent um, opposition that a state might have to weakening its own position. Uh, thanks again for your talk. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, I mean, possibility for change in Biden administration, um, I mean, there's good and there's bad, right? We've seen some things, you know, just in recent days, we saw them the release, the, the Pentagon released the forced posture review that had been promised, which said that everything was fine and we should just keep going. Um, so that was a complete sort of waste of time. Um, but at the same time, you know, we saw a sanctions review come out recently and, and the unclassified version is only a couple of pages, um, but it does reflect a lot of the concerns of sort of people in the restrained community, but pe people elsewhere who, who said that sanctions and these coercive tools were not in fact achieving the goals that the U.S. has been trying to achieve with them. Um, and so, you know, we do see these signs that the administration is taking some, at least taking some of these criticisms on board. Um, you know, I think we're going to see in the national security strategy, we're going to see something that is far more focused on domestic politics um, and far more focused on sort of thinking about the ways in which domestic and foreign policy interact rather than necessarily being all sort of China, China, Russia. You know, I, I think... The Biden administration, I think, is is aware of the constraints in U.S. foreign policy, but I think you know they are not they are certainly not all the way there to thinking about adopting restraint. But you know, compared to previous administrations, they are more open to some of these ideas um, than we've seen in previous administrations. So perhaps this will be a slow process um, through different administrations. Um, on the question of whether restraint is ever a real possibility because it involves sort of giving things up. Um, you know, I think that's um, the status quo bias is one problem with arguing for something like a more restrained foreign policy. Um, we saw this in the debates over whether to leave Afghanistan or not, right? We saw the debates, we saw people saying, um, well, you know, it's sustainable. It's low cost, it's sustainable, it's only killing about 10 people a year. Um, you know, we can just leave a couple of thousand troops there in perpetuity. Um, and that was sort of the status quo bias. And, and it's... Um, and it took overwhelming, uh, you know, opposition um, from a wide swath of society and politics to overcome that argument. And I think that is the kind of uphill battle that restrainers are going to face in a, in a lot of spheres. Um, I think the one, the one reason for optimism is um, that there is a fairly 
broad coalition or a fairly broad understanding that U.S. foreign policy has problems and needs reform. Um, and I think, you know, for, for restrainers, I think the opportunity is, can we take that, that understanding that reform is needed and channel it in a productive direction? Um, that, that, I think, is the question. Not so much whether you could, you know, find an administration that will impose every tenet of restraint tomorrow. Dr. Jim Walsh. Thanks very much. Thanks for uh, leading us into a, a wonderful conversation. I want to pick up where Rich was uh, talking, asking about China and being someone who knows nothing about China. I thought that was a good precedent and I want to push it further. Um, I guess to be really uh, simple about it, one might say, ask themselves, well, what is the greater danger vis-a-vis -vis China? Is the danger that we're going to underestimate China and they're going to surprise us in ways to our disadvantage? Or are we more likely to overestimate the Chinese threat and perhaps produce a uh, escalation spiral in different domains? It would seem to me that if you thought that the second was more likely, and I don't know which is more likely, I sort of feel like the second is more likely because I've been hearing China threat for a long time now, but whatever. Uh, if you thought the second was more likely, you would think that the case for restraint would be more important, not less important. And you can imagine a situation where the restrainers could win in Europe and win these other areas where it is easier. And because it wasn't part of the conversation vis-a-vis -vis China, you lose in the net because you get what happens in China swamps everything else. So I'm just putting that out there as a, a question. And then a minor thing, super minor thing, but it, in terms of giving feedback on the presentation, I wonder if there, well, about the tension between restraint and leverage over our allies in this sort of way, in the budgetary way that Rich talked about before. Talked about the U.S. pulls back. We expect our allies to do more for themselves, spend for themselves in the face of reality. And then we, you also sort of talked about other sorts of things that have to happen to fill in the space from our removal and that we'll ask our friends to help with that. But aren't we asking our friends to help with that at the moment where we have less leverage than we did before and they're preoccupied with building up their own scene? And I wonder if that math works out on the budget. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good point of the one about leverage. Um, I tend to think that if we're not really getting anything for our leverage right now, then there is probably not a huge downside in trying the um, in trying the withdrawal and then maybe build a more approach. Um, I mean, it's effectively if this approach hasn't worked, then what leverage did we ever really have? Um, but but I accept your your. I accept the point, um, and I think that there is a broader point to be made, which is that we, uh, in in applying this kind of, of restraint or realism or whatever to, to American foreign policy, we are inherently accepting that we are probably going to give up some leverage in other regions of the world. Um, we are accepting that as a cost in exchange for the other benefits that we would get from retrenchment. Um, and I still think that's a fair trade-off, but it's one that, that should be acknowledged. Um, on the question of China, whether we underestimate or overestimate it, um, you know, I think right now we're very much overestimating it. Um, I did a paper earlier this year, actually, that, that I think kind of got at this question. Um, and it was we were trying to figure out why everyone in Washington was suddenly talking about great power competition. Where the hell did this phrase come from? What did it actually mean? Um, and what we ended up sort of 
narrowing it down to was that um, great power competition, the way people in Washington are talking about it, is basically an assumption about revisionist intentions in China. It's the assumption that China's rise is not just in capabilities, but it is in intentions. Um, and that China is necessarily expansionist, um, you know, and if we sort of, you know, they're going to try and take, um, you know, one country after another. I think you can see the clearest example of this in Albert Colby's recent book, in which he, he literally basically says that, that that's what China's going to do. Um, and I think, you know, that assumption, you know, whether, whether it's deeply held or explicitly held, I think that's what's driving a lot of the debate about China and Washington. And I think that is leading us to overestimate them because, you know, what we, what we know from the literature is that revisionism is rarely um, absolute, right? It, it's almost always about specific ends, specific goals. There is usually bounded. Revisionism is usually bounded. Um, and the challenge, I think, for U.S. policymakers is to figure out what that bound is for China. You know, what is it that China cares about? And I wouldn't pretend to actually know the answer to this because I'm not a China specialist, but it's to, it's to hedge our bets while trying to figure out what it is that they're actually trying to get. So not necessarily assuming that China's revisionism is unbounded, that they're trying to push us out of Asia entirely, um, but trying to figure out where are we more likely to see conflicts because it's something they really care about. I think Taiwan sort of looms large in this, in this picture. Um, and where are the areas where they really don't care about it so much and, and conflict less like? Professor Dick Samuels. Uh, thanks, Taylor. And thanks, Emma. This was just the right talk for this audience, and we really appreciated it. I'm going to take us back to Asia again. And, and like others, I was stimulated by something. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, uh, I was stimulated by something that Rich said when he asked the question sort of in passing, uh, uh, how much restraint is enough? And I, I thought maybe we might also ask, actually re-ask, because it came up, uh, in the comparison with Europe, which is how much restraint is too much. And, and you know, in, in thinking about that, it, earlier, your earlier response suggested that the most likely outcome of too much restraint in Asia would be the accommodation of the other, uh, the middle powers, ROK, Japan, uh, uh, to Chinese, uh, to Chinese power in the region. But, uh, you know, there's, there's another alternative, and it's one that those of us who do study Asia have sort of uh, found in the air, it's in the ether in Asia right now, which is a nuclear proliferation. And we haven't talked about that. So I wonder if you could speak to that alternative uh, and whether and how much, certainly we should be concerned, so it's not whether, but how much we should be concerned um, in your view about uh, the, the uh, nuclear breakout by ROK or Japan, you know, they're the most likely first movers in all of this. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. I mean, again, really good question. Um, so, you know, I think on the question of sort of how much restraint is too much, let, let me just say, I guess, that my own thinking on this was really informed by Stephen Wertheim's excellent history book, um, Tomorrow the World. Um, and in it, he, you know, it's, it's intended to be a history of um, how the notion of, of isolationism or of internationalism without military components organized U.S. foreign policy. And it's a really good book on that front. But um, the thing that really shaped my thinking was he goes through in depth 
the deliberations of U.S. planners during World War II as they tried to think about what order would look like afterwards. Um, and they tried to think through sort of what could the U.S. tolerate in terms of being restricted out of other, other areas of the world. Um, and I'm sure this was not his intent, but what I came away from that book thinking is that that is one of the questions that we should be asking ourselves today. Um, is that American uh, prosperity, if we are restricted purely to sort of the Americas, to the Western Hemisphere, um, American prosperity will suffer substantially. And I think, you know, for, for me, that is where I think that line should be. I don't think we can tolerate that. Um, and so I think that is the level of restraint that is too much, at least for me. But that is that is my personal opinion. But I would commend that book um, just for it's sort of a, it's a great sociological history of a group of really smart people trying to think through similar problems to the ones we're facing today and coming up with imperfect solutions. Um, and I, I thought that was great. Um, in terms of the question of accommodation versus nuclear proliferation in Asia, um, again, I'm just going to point you guys to other great work. Um, so Jenny Lind and Daryl Press had a paper, some of you have probably seen it already, recently um, arguing effectively that the Republic uh, of Korea should consider getting nuclear weapons as a defendant. Um, and I think from the point of view of U.S. policymakers, um, that's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? I can see how it would resolve, it would certainly resolve some of the concerns about U.S. forward presence in Asia and, um, you know, potentially creating a conflict with China while trying to protect um, other countries or bolster them. Um, at the same time, uh, nuclear proliferation is not necessarily cost-free, right? There are risks, there are hazards. We know that accidents happen. We know that humans are fallible. The more nuclear proliferation is not necessarily a good thing. Um, so I am, I am quite ambivalent about that. I'm just going to leave that question open. Um, but I would, I would encourage everybody to, to go and read that paper. It's, it's brilliant. Bill Hahn of the Naval War College. So thanks, Emma. It's been a very interesting talk. I come from the Naval War College where we talk about China all the time and where the U.S. Navy has just been enthralled by the China threat and the ability to potentially get more resources, uh, which, which led me to the how-to. Um, the how-to question of how to implement this strategy. First, you give the indication that uh, you know, variation in in not only parties, U.S. political parties, but within U.S. political parties uh, give potentially some space for this. So where is your, does this foreign policy land? In other words, who do you want to get elected in order to have a chance for this policy? The other is I've been thinking about budget. Uh, and so it seems very difficult to actually reduce the U.S. budget, uh, military budget to be able to force some of this restraint. And so if you can't reduce a budget, one of the things you can do is prioritize the budget to kind of force the type of movement. And so I think in terms of the spending on nuclear uh, forces, not to expand it, but uh, for replacement, uh, high level expenses as a way to shift down some of the spending. And so it leads me to think about what does a military sufficiency look like? In other words, what capabilities you want to give up what capabilities would you want to take on if you have to spend the same amount on budget? So two very different questions. One is terms of who do you want to win elections to do what you want to do? And how do you get your military force structure to be the sufficient 
force structure that you're looking thanks yeah so within the parties um right now the restrainers um such as they are they don't necessarily agree with everything but you know broadly construed restrainers right now fit within either the progressive wing of the democratic party or within the more sort of conservative nationalist um, or even paleo-conservative wing of the Republican Party. Um, so people like um, Matt Gates, for example, who has many other problems that we won't discuss, but um, was, a strong, was a strong supporter of withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? Very Trumpian, um, very focused on um, sort of not wasting money on overseas, um, you know, nation building, right? Um, Mike Lee in the Senate, for example. So people like that. Um, on the Democratic side of the aisle, it's people like Bernie Sanders, uh, Chris Murphy, Ilan Omar, right? Ro Khanna, um, who are among the most um, liberal uh, in, the, in the political sense, in the, in the, the democratic sense of the word, um, the most progressive members of the Senate, um, and who typically are coming at this out of an anti-war background, um, but who have, in many cases, embraced the actual sort of more theoretical understanding of strained realism. Um, so those are the places where I think restrainers have found a foothold for their ideas. Um, I think that the interesting question, you say, you know, how do you implement the strategy? The interesting question is whether that is enough or whether it needs to broaden out. And I, I think it needs to broaden out. So I think we need, you know, within the Democratic Party, I think we need mainstream former liberal internationalist Democrats to come around to adopting this, this strategy, um, because I don't think just progressives are going to be enough. So in the second question on budget, um, you know, I think we could have a whole debate about the budget stuff, um, about whether restraint would be cheaper or not. There's been an, an ongoing debate about that. Um, I'll point you to a really good um, CSBA, the Centre for Study of, of Budgets. Um, they did a really good study a few years back where they basically got teams from the major DC think tanks, um, you know, like Centre for American Progress, AEI, Cato, to do their, um, to see what would your budget be under your preferred strategy. Um, and it's got like five options. Um, and so it's a really good overview of where you might save money or not under restraint. Um, but I mean, just in general terms, uh, you know, how I would think about this, if, if you know, I was thinking about prioritizing even just the budget that we have, you know, strongly prioritize naval and air assets um, over land power, um, and then trying to avoid um, trying to avoid the sort of high level arms race spending that we're starting to see, you know, so we've got, um, you know, the nuclear modernization process here, China's nuclear modernization there, questions about missile defense. Um, you could see how that could become a very extensive cycle very fast. Um, we can almost certainly get more bang for our buck elsewhere if we avoid that sort of um, arms race. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.